This is the Burn the Turf Competitive Debating Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Wu. The BGT Podcast is a place where we're going to talk about everything to do with competitive debating. On the show, expect to see discussions about tournaments, motion, strategy, and highlighting the skills and achievements of top debaters on the scene. We'll also be bringing in special guests for each episode. And with us today, we have a longtime debater and QCIT finalist, Elizabeth Lee. Welcome. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Joseph. Thanks for having me on. Cool, cool. So uh, let's start with a little bit of introduction about you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get started? How long you've been debating? Uh, yeah, sure. Hey, I'm Elizabeth Liz. I'm a rising grade 12 student at Branksome Hall, which also makes me feel a little bit old, but that's okay. I've been debating for about 2.5 years now, and I started in the winter of grade 9, although I didn't start debating seriously until grade 9 summer during COVID-19. And like the way I got started and the reason I started debating, it's actually when my partner, Hao, made a Discord server during the summer that we would later call 6AM Gang. And in the server, we started to get a lot of other debaters in a year to join. We talked a lot. We ran a bunch of practice rounds. So I think like that was really good for creating a sense of community that was mostly wholesome, though somewhat unwholesome at times. And yeah, that just helped sustain my interest. And it was a really good avenue for me to get experience and to hear from older, more experienced debaters at the time. Cool. That sounds really, really cool. And just a little bit about me, because I realize I haven't introduced myself at all. Uh, I currently am a third or I'm going to third year at McGill, study political science and math. I have been debating for six years now since late grade nine. Uh, and I started really seriously debating in like grade 11 and grade 12. So I've been seriously debating for about four years now. I've been around the high school circuit a lot and I do a good amount of coaching now, which is uh, why I'm still involved. So yeah, how did you feel um, as someone who got started in like debating in COVID? How was the experience like maybe striking or different to how you would imagine it in person? I feel like I might be one of the few debaters who say this, but I think I actually really enjoyed debating during COVID because as someone who is a lot more shy going into debate, I think it would have been a lot more intimidating if I started debating in person and just like was thrown into like in-person tournaments. Mm. And there's like a lot of advantages to debating online, right? Like, like uh, you can Docs. wake up. Through. You can wake up a lot later to go to these tournaments. I type faster, way like way faster than I write my notes, which I think it's also going to be hard to adjust to in person, like writing notes um, as well. And also just have a lot more prep time. I also have a terrible sense of direction, so I would get very lost if I had to find my room in person. So this also saves time letting me prep and write notes, which I think is quite nice. Yeah, like in person, basically, if you're on opening government, you will need to spend at least eight to nine minutes finding a room, unless if you're like right next to the GA or debating in the GA. So it is a big nerf to opening government when you are in person for sure. But yeah, like that sounds actually really cool. I remember my first debate, I was like super nervous. I was like, it was like in front of like eight of my classmates, right? And I'm still nervous debating, standing there in front of people speaking out loud. And I feel like it, it is definitely a lot more approachable. It's more approachable, maybe less fun online, but that, that's the trade-off there, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What would you say is your best debating experience so far? Ooh, okay. This is ironic because I just talked about how much I liked online debating, but it was probably, I think, near the winter or maybe in March. There's a Worlds tournament called IDTL where me and my teammates, it was uh, Andrew Shi, Andrew Liu, Sherry, mm -hmm. um, David, and myself. We actually like got together and debated together in person. Oh. And like the vibe was just immaculate. Like we could chat in between rounds we played smash on the switch it actually felt a lot better than like just calling your partner over discord or something and that was quite wholesome 
Yeah, I can imagine. That sounds so, so fun. It's like, it's almost like, I mean, you are debating in person, just not against the other team, which is like, eh, you don't need the other team anyways. That sounds so, so, so fun. Alrighty. Now with that wholesome introduction out of the way, the first thing we're going to talk about is from this point in August, we've got about basically a week left until the official new school year starts. And what that means is we have all of our retiring or leaving grade 12s out of the circuit, and then we basically have a completely new season of competitive debating. So I've written out, or I've got a list of a few of the names of the really competitive debaters who are graduating this year. It's a pretty long list. Shout out to everyone for having a really long and successful and fruitful career. So leaving this year are Stellar, Michael, Max, Vincent, Alex, Annie, Claire, Larissa, Tyra, Alex, Zoo, David Zoo, Stu, uh, Dylan, and Sherry. So a lot of people who have been to a lot of tournaments in the last year, who I've enjoyed watching and getting to know, um, they will be gone for next year. As someone who's going to be in the circuit next year, how do you feel or what do you think it means for the circuit for all of these really, really strong debaters to be leaving? Um, In terms of how I feel, um, this actually makes me quite sad, which is a little bit irrational considering this is technically good for me because they were all incredibly good but like i'll kind of miss just having them around like sherry was lovely she's also my neighbor so i love her I, like david and alex we were in the same class for a long time um stella and michael were probably people i looked up to a lot when i was first starting to debate and learning how debate works and i think it was just really nice seeing all of them in the circuit and just feeling like it was really terrifying going in is obviously terrifying, but it was also really nice in a very strange masochistic way. So yeah, like I think I'll miss the fact that they're all leaving. In terms of the circuit, I feel like there's a really interesting change in the circuit where with all the, the top debaters leaving, it's like sort of like a wealth analogy, a wealth inequality analogy, where the skill is like less concentrated at the top. But I think in recent years, maybe partially because a lot of debaters started debating and learning debate during COVID. There's a lot more really, really strong debaters concentrated in like the middle because of how accessible debate resources have been, how accessible tournaments have been, and all of these things. Yeah, for sure. Especially, I think on top of that, a lot of the coaching, a lot of like the communities, um, before you would be more or less just restricted to your club or your coaching class. But now that it's online, you have massive, massive groups of like dozens and dozens of people together all talking about and practicing debate together, which is really, really cool. Um, And I think you're definitely right about the average skill getting a lot better and also it being a lot more concentrated at the top. Like every tournament, you see a ton of people who are debating really solidly all at the top, all competing for those few break spots, which uh, gets really tight and really competitive, but it's really, really fun to to watch and observe from, from the sidelines. If I were to ask you, I'll give you my thoughts on this, after but who would you be looking out for next year as like some of the some of the top teams uh, competing Ooh, okay that's a good question it's also a hard question because a lot of the people i know are either graduating or retiring yeah but if i had to give some names i'd, I'd say like rally obviously incredibly cracked i don't know if he's going to be to be debating as often next year given the fact that like be the guy has enough right? achievements. yeah no he, he has like, enough achievements for five lifetimes <laughs> But yeah, like if he debates, obviously incredibly terrifying. Tanish and Barry as well, although I think both of them aren't going to be as active in British parliamentary. But if they do go to tournaments, obviously incredibly good, very amazing debaters. Same with Maria, where she might still be relatively prevalent and will obviously be 
very difficult to debate against. Yeah, I'm just going through a list of names in my head now. Uh, like Randy and Justin, they're both 05s. I also don't know if they'll be as active in BP, but they're probably going to do some like CSDF tournaments where they'll obviously do really well. Oh, and Grayson and or Angelina, they're both incredible debaters. They're both younger than me as well. And from my experience debating like with or against them, they're all like really talented and very amazing. Yeah, for sure. I've seen a lot of them debate. They've been really, really solid this year and probably are going to continue to crush it next year. Uh, a few more that I got, I, I'm pretty sure Jin and I, Jin partnered with Kevin at the round robin. Uh, so I'm pretty sure they're going to be at least a pretty, pretty strong team next year. Uh, Jin making finals at QZ, which we'll talk more about. Kevin and Jin making uh, finals at round robin against uh, some of the good teams too. Uh, Jin's been crushing it for a while now. I expect to see him uh, be really solid next year uh, as well. Yeah, we, go, we probably still have a really, really exciting circuit going on uh, next year, probably just as competitive, and probably want to see a lot of new names rising as well. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, I hope that all people out there are looking forward to that as well. Thing to add on. Yeah. Um, I just thought of like a, a list of a few more debaters that were like um, a little bit younger. Obviously, this is not all encompassing. These are just the people that come to mind at the very moment. I think Kaylee and Sarah, we were also in a class for a long time. They, they're really solid. They also did well at Queen's Summer. In fact, they won Queen's Summer, which is really <laughs> amazing. So yeah, obviously doing really well. Uh, Jason and Julian, very, very cracked as well. Eric Yang, very nice kid. Also incredible at debate, as well as world schools. Yeah, I think also one, one person I just thought of is Sophie, Sophie Guangdong. She's like really, really solid on mechanisms. I've, I've seen her debate a few times. Uh, I've judged her a few times. And I think she's really, really solid uh, on a lot of the fundamentals, giving really, really fast but like really good analysis too uh, and i think that always helps for uh good debaters so you've been around for three years including 11 10 and 9 at this point you've been around for i guess three different year changes then too in your experience what have the most striking year changes in recent history been mm, that's also a good question um i think i was less familiar with uh my grade nine year because I wasn't really active competitively so mm. I think you might have been around that year it was with oh yeah that was my year that was my year uh, RP. um yeah I'm not, not as familiar with that year but I can say in my grade 10 year which was 2020 2021 that year was just a lot more intimidating to me I feel like in terms of the people at the very top I perceive them to be really like a lot more difficult but this might also be like biased because I was also a lot worse at the time <laughs> so yeah like Gabby um, Stella and Michael, who were more active that year, I feel, that made the, tor the, that made the circuit feel a lot more intimidating. But I'd say going into the future years, it links back to what I said before, where I feel like a lot of younger generations had a lot more decent or really good debaters, which made it feel less like just the few top debaters winning all the tournaments and a lot more like there's a variety of debaters who are all doing very well, who are all very strong. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I can just talk briefly about my year. So my year was the 2019-2020 year. That was our last year in debate. And our year had a ton of really, really good and competitive people leaving. I'm pretty sure it's one of the, like looking at this year's list, it's really, really long and really, really strong too. Our year's list was also, I think, really, really strong. Included like uh, Max Rosen, Rena, RP, Angela, and a lot more people who are like, really really good that i couldn't possibly name in this year that year was probably a big big shakeup which honestly let a lot of people 
become a lot better the next year, right? And it was really cool to watch uh, people fill in the gaps. People like Rally and Maria really step, really step up and become a lot better in those years. Uh, and it was really cool to watch. Overall, I feel like the circuit has been relatively constant in many ways. It's just different people being at the top, but I think the relative feel of debating, although it got more accessible, has largely stayed the same, in my opinion, at least. Mm-hmm. I felt like uh, like it, it, the, the perception obviously changes as you become better, but I think the actual feel um, objectively stays some, somewhat, somewhat consistent. So I'd agree with you on that. Alrighty, cool. So uh, moving on from that, now we're going to talk a little bit about the QCID High School Tournament, which took place yesterday and the day before. Not sure when people are going to be watching it, either on the Monday or the Tuesday, uh, but I'll just give a brief overview for the tournament. The tournament consisted of five rounds, break to quarterfinals, had a junior semifinals as well, had 70-something teams and a lot of really, really competitive teams there as well. And uh, yeah, I'd consider it, I don't know, I have like kind of a classification system for like the, the tournaments and like their prestige and stuff. Like tournaments that have over 80 teams and like a lot, like a majority of the top teams being there. This is borrowed from like Super Smash Bros. Melee. I just, I call them like super majors and then majors are like uh, 60 plus teams yeah, 60 plus teams, uh, several good, like a bunch of good teams there. Uh, and below that are just like minors, like smaller tournaments. So super majors for this year, I would probably, ju- I would probably consider like Queens, McGill. I don't know how many people UBC actually get, um, but it'd probably be the most competitive tournament uh, on the West Coast for sure. Uh, UBC, McGill, Hardhouse, those are the big ones uh, for this year. So moving forward, I'll definitely be watching out for those, probably be judging at them and uh, probably see a lot of people listening to this podcast there too as well. But for this tournament in specific, we first want I, w- I first want to start off by congratulating Alex and Leo for winning the whole thing in what I thought was a very well debated final. We'll get to that momentarily. And I also wanted to highlight who I thought uh, were pretty breakout debaters at this tournament. Previously, they had been uh, they had been doing fairly well with some junior breaks and speaking fairly well. But uh, this time at QCID, which is at QCID, which is very prestigious tournament. We saw Jade Wang and Conan Lee make a run all the way into the finals. I'm pretty sure they haven't done anything to this uh, level before. And watching them debate, they were debating extremely well. I think Jade had very, very solid cases and also like set up for set up for her cases and really strong uh, mechanisms to beat out uh, other teams. Jade baited me really hard by saying she hard fourth in the semis and I hear that she made it through in the finals and I was super happy for her. Conan as well, really solid and uh, rather strategic uh, seconds. Um, pretty good responses to things that we heard uh, out of most of the other side. And yeah, it was really fun uh, getting to see new debaters take take advantage of this tournament. Um, you must have hit them like one or one or two times, right? Right, Liz? Yeah, I think the most striking examples when we hit them in finals, which as I mentioned before, I don't remember super vividly because I kind of erased it from my memory out of trauma. Uh-huh. But I do recall they did quite well. Um, I think their back half strategy was quite good in terms of finding out the nuances of what wasn't covered on opening, um, especially for us, like on opening opposition, yeah. they were closing. Um, in terms of filling in analysis as to why... Okay, I, I think you're going to talk about this finals motion later, but let's just say that their analysis was really good and quite nuanced. Yeah, yeah. Like when I, when I started giving it, um, I st- immediately struck me as a pretty good and well well placed case in the round, even if it didn't end up winning. So one thing I wanted to ask you, just as an overview for the tournament, did you have like any general strategy as to what you prioritized 
in your speeches or as your team or do you just kind of debate your best as always? Obviously debate my best as well. Mm-hmm. But one thing going into the tournament is, um, so I usually partner with Hal, who's my usual partner. Yeah. So this time I partnered with Andrew. So one of the things I wanted to focus on, given that this was someone I don't usually partner with, is being a lot more communicative during prep. Whereas with Hal and I, we often just talk a little bit at the beginning, then we just go off and write our own thing because we kind of can read each other's minds. It's like telepathy. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, this time I made an active effort to work on like articulating my thought process out loud, being able to type or write the case while I'm writing, while I'm explaining the case as well. So to improve prep cohesion, case cohesion as well. That's like one of the big things I wanted to keep in mind going into the tournament. Yeah, yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, and, and yeah, that's definitely a really, really important skill to work on. Prep, like literally having a good prep versus having a bad prep is a huge gap, especially on on opening and even closing teams, being able to think of the important like perspectives or like pieces of uh, characterization or like your strategy are really, really big on, on all teams pretty much. Yeah, cool. So uh, at this point, let's move into a breakdown of some of the motions. Uh, for some things, I have additional comments uh, to add if i talk about any links or any like tournaments uh, that are outside of this tournament i'll probably be linking it in the description so feel free to take a look there afterwards but the first round uh, of qcid was this house believes that social justice movement should prioritize local issues over um, international issues so the first first thing i wanted to uh, ask you about this is how do you feel about the motion did you like it not really like it think it was bad good I have strong thoughts about this motion. <laughs> you do. Oh, I'm sorry, Cusid. Okay, you do. I do. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I think this is a motion that is hard to balance, mm-hmm. from my opinion. Like from my perspective, I think we got the best side, which is opening government. Mm-hmm. And the case we ran was, I guess, in its most simplified form, just talk about why there's greater capacity to create change in terms of proximity, um, politically. We talked about why creating international, trying to create international change is often harmful in terms of like interventionist mechanisms of large countries. And then we talked about why you just also get more support and buy-in because you have issues that are more proximate to you. And all of these just felt like independent paths to victory. If we prove more buy-in, that's contingent on um, creating change is contingent on buy-in. If we talked about capacity to create change, that's also like an independent path to victory. Thirdly, whether or not this change was good, also an independent path to victory. And all these things felt like clashes that we would eventually win on. And for our, our team personally, we couldn't really think of the strongest op responses that would actually take down our case. Mm-hmm. So we left the round feeling like it was gov heavy. Perhaps you have different thoughts, but that's my opinion of the emotion that it's probably easier to debate on prop and op teams that succeed would probably succeed based on being more experienced debaters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so for round one, you always have to be a little bit careful looking at, uh, looking at the stats. Uh, so what the stats say for this round is government is slightly favored, 1.58 to 1.42. Um, and this might, this probably speaks to your skill, but basically CG is way, like OG is actually the worst position in this debate and CG is the best. Yeah. OG has like 1.28, CG has 1.89. And when I say like one point, whatever, right, basically what that means is there are six points that are given out in any, uh, debate. And on average, each team receives 1.5, right? So this, uh, so uh, if a team gets 1.5, it's exactly average for that round. If they get above 1.5, uh, they are better than average for the round. Um, and if they get 2.0, it is like 33% easier to get points in that team compared to other teams. So in this case, it probably took a lot of, in most of the rooms, right? Because these stats come from 
all of the rooms. So that includes a lot of junior debaters that, that showed up to the tournament, a lot of uh, less experienced debaters too. But definitely, I think you're right that government has a has a plethora of ways to win the debate. And it appears like a lot of the time opening government couldn't always think about all of the ways or closing government generally had enough available to them to be able to win. Given that it's round one, it's also possible that a surplus of the good teams were put, or like the top tier teams were put on uh, closing government, which probably warps the stats a little bit. I haven't looked through that yet. I think the the ways that you identify you won um, were pretty good on, on government, uh, especially. I think for opposition, it is definitely a bit more difficult. Um, I do have a link that pulls it up, uh, that pulls up the last time I can re recall this motion being run outside of QCID, which was Queens High School 2019. Um, and at that, uh, just it, that that tournament was run uh, in CP, so it was a one a two v two format instead of two v two v two v two. It was actually perfectly balanced there, which probably speaks to the fact that it is a relatively balanced gov op motion. But I think as you get better, it becomes easier and easier to debate to debate on government. But I think there definitely are some uh, cases you can run reasonably well um, opposition on opposition. One thing that struck me is the extent to which yeah the extent to which you're able to actually get external support or the extent to which your movement uh can be strong uh so and i think there's also an aspect that you can focus on uh that relates to where this actually applies so if you're prioritizing uh local issues i think there's some framing you can run about how the majority of social justice wealth probably exists in like more developed countries and less of it exists in lesser developed countries. And what that means is you don't, uh, if you focus on local issues, there's less likely to be a prioritization on that specific issue in the context of other countries, whereas the opposite probably uh, has that happen more of the time. Um, I do think there are ways to tackle the issue on government for sure, but that's one of the things you probably have an advantage on. And then the second thing is, yeah, the second thing is, probably to do on a, on a similar vein to do with funding, but it definitely is more difficult to run on opposition, I think. It's not quite as clear what the benefit of local issues, uh, which are more specific in nature, are compared to international issues. And Any additional thoughts on that? Um, I think my first instinct is to try and debate you right now on the podcast because I am a debater. <laughs> yeah. Just tell me why my points are bad and wrong. Yeah, like... I think I just agree with your general comments that the motion probably seems balanced for a lot of debaters, but in terms of debating both sides at the peak, I think it does fall on government a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that one. Okay, cool. Uh, I don't think there's that much more to say about this motion, uh, other than that probably it's strong at, at, at the peak level, unless if there's like a really good opposition case that neither of us are thinking about. And that a lot of people can can actually access if they're a lot better. It's probably probably fairly gov leaning, but this is pretty in terms of the stats at least. It's pretty good for um. It's pretty good for a debate round in general. A lot a lot more debate rounds will be a lot more egregious in their balance, and this is like mostly fine. It's like one point three on OG, one point five five on OO, one point nine on CG, which is a little bit high, and then one point three on CO. Yeah, uh, that is that for round one. Round two, I think, is way more interesting. So I'll read out the info slide for round two, um, and then I'll read out the motion. So the info slide is, in a fee-for-service system, doctors bill provincial health insurance providers and receive the appropriate fee for the service they provide. 
Meanwhile, the capitation system is one in which doctors sign on and become responsible for a set of patients. These doctors receive a fixed salary scaled to the expectation of how often their patients will use their services. For example, they will be paid higher for doctors that take on older or pregnant patients. So basically, the motion is this house prefers capitation over the fee-for-service system, which means that like government basically wants people to sign on patients and be paid for how often they're expected to use it for basically the identity of the patient and what issues they may have. And the fee-for-service is status quo, where doctors are just paid based on serving patients more or less. Thoughts on this motion? Um, I quite like this motion, actually. It reminds me of a lot of other motions that apply to like specifically the United States healthcare system in terms of nationalizing healthcare. I think yeah. a lot of analysis is cross applicable, mm-hmm. but there is like a few unique aspects of this motion that I think make it interesting to debate. The first is the idea that this salary is scaled proportionally on opposition, no, on proposition. So I, I think both teams have to really focus on proving a margin and being comparative in this case. The other thing is that it's this is more prevalent in my round where. It was a big issue in terms of characterizing the interests of doctors. Do you mostly care about money? Do you have um, external reasons to be a doctor? Like perhaps you actually care about saving lives. Wow. (laughs) And whether or not they face accountability mechanisms. This is all quite important to the debate. And yeah, I think these are the two broadly quite important things to prove for all sides. Yeah, you covered that pretty well. I think this motion is really cool um, as well. I have not seen uh, a motion like this before maybe it's come up at some point but definitely really really cool and interesting motion i think it is i think there's it, to me it feels like there's no inherent advantage other than the fact that closing does a reasonable amount better than opening because if you because it's relatively difficult to think of like the really really good arguments um i heard some really interesting cases in the round that i watched so one of the cases i heard on opposition uh, or closing opposition is just that it's going to be very, very difficult to be able to switch doctors and it's going to be difficult to access doctors under a capitation system. And the reason why that's the case is because doctors will be wanting to sign a certain list of high value patients because that is their livelihood, that is their money pretty much. Um, And they will be unlikely to want to sign out future patients, right? So they would be likely to very quickly get their list of patients, sign a bunch of uh, high value patients, and then not really take any more. So for example, if you're uh, an immigrant to the country uh, without that much medical records and stuff, or you are just someone who is leaving your, your parents' insurance and you enter a community, you'll probably have a hard time finding a new doctor or a doctor who's willing to sign you because they already have a list of clients. Sure, people might might die. Sure, people might leave. But given uh, given the, the time lag that would probably exist between you moving somewhere and then someone getting a spot, you would probably have quite a difficult time accessing healthcare when you really need it, right? And that's comparatively better in the fee-for-service system because the result of a new person entering the system and signing to see a doctor or just visiting the clinic to see a doctor is just that it gets a little bit more busy for everyone, right? So the harm is like more evenly distributed. You still get your health care. Everyone just waits a little bit longer. And that is probably comparatively better. And then the second thing on that idea is that people would have a hard time switching. So if you think your doctor is not listening to you properly uh, or not understanding or not giving you proper treatment, you would have a lot more difficult time switching or getting a second opinion because 
clinics and their doctors would all have people who they see already. Um, and for and this is particularly bad with specialists, for example, who are likely to sign off a specific list of relatively rich patients uh, who are likely to want, like I don't know, likely to be able to uh, be relatively high value because uh, they can afford these services, uh, they can pay more out of pocket, they'd be more likely to see see the specialist for these problems, or for whatever reason, the specialists are probably going to have be fairly booked up as well. So if you needed to see a psychiatrist or you needed to see a dermatologist, it might be more difficult to try to access those as well. Um, that's one of the cases I heard out of uh, closing opposition. I thought it was really cool. Um, and then out of uh, out of government, were you government or uh, you were opposition on this side or on this debate? We were closing government. Clo you were closing government. And how did that feel mm -hmm. to be on closing government? Um, yeah, I would agree with the statement you said earlier. I am really glad they were not opening governments <laughs> because I think there's a lot of nuance to this motion that you don't see in a lot of like standard should we nationalize healthcare motions that um, would take a lot of time to just think through a little bit more deeply. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of closing governments, we actually talked a lot about the things that you just talked about, but from the other perspective, right? Mm -hmm. So in terms of doctors being more choosy in terms of the patients they take on, the direction we took this in closing government was we said, this actually gave doctors on opposition the incentive to discriminate against lower income patients mm. because they were projected to be less capable of continuing service in the long term. So we would talk about why there's still often out of pocket fees that you have to pay for like prescription pills. Mm -hmm. There are some places with services that aren't covered by insurance. And what this means in opposition is doctors are less willing to take on patients who aren't able to pay these out of pocket fees into the long term. So when they stop treatments, they also don't get a salary. The comparative is when um, you get like a yearly or quarterly salary, whether, whether or not they keep coming back. So you have more confidence in taking on these lower income patients. So that's the direction we took that on. Um, we also talked about specialization, like funnily enough. So on closing government, we said um, we get more people being referred to specialists because when, okay, so people start oftentimes by seeing their family doctor for their treatments or to diagnose issues. Then oftentimes the family doctor refers them to specialists. On our side, these doctors are more likely to refer them because they can still get their wage. On opposition, they're more likely to prescribe like short-term solutions, like perhaps painkillers, to continue reaping the benefits of getting them coming in for more treatments. Oh, wow. That's pretty sinister. That's a pretty sinister yeah. claim about doctors. I'm not going to lie. That's true. That's why I'm saying the other team should have characterized doctors a lot more. Would have helped. Yeah. Yeah. If you just say that, like, that probably violates the Hippocratic Oath to get more profit out of assigning painkillers. I'm pretty sure a judge would believe that, but maybe you need to explain a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I think it's also like, you can probably characterize it more nuanced on terms of like directly misdiagnosing or giving them the wrong treatments, but rather subtly maybe omitting better treatments or mm -hmm. omitting things like um, early referrals when they, you first see an issue arise. Yeah. yeah, like subtle things that you probably wouldn't be able to include. You can probably show that, you can probably characterize that doctors Okay, it might be a little bit more difficult to characterize that doctors are slimy people, but like they still went to residency and all their stuff. And like the thing that gets you through that arguably is the money at the end. If you're just doing it because there's it's something that you like and you care for, there are probably other ways that you could do that. Um, but there are probably also other ways you can make for money. So there are, you, you can probably argue either side of the coin there and it would be it would be fairly reasonable, I think. They're probably also like hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt after med school. Oh yeah, they they probably have a lot of pressure on their shoulders financially too. Yeah, I forgot about that. Mm -hmm. As a benefit of not going into medicine. True. Yeah. All right.
any last thoughts on that motion? Otherwise, we'll go to the next one. Um, not particularly. I think we've covered everything. Yeah, cool. All right, next one. I think this one is an interesting take on this on climate change. So the motion is, this house prefers a world in which parents in developed nations teach their children that climate change is caused by structural factors and large actors. Uh, for example, corporations, collective action problems, capitalism, etc. Rather than teaching their children about personal responsibility and agency in fighting climate change, i.e., reducing car use, food waste, etc. So, uh, what are your first thoughts on the motion? Do you like it? What side did you end up debating? Um, I like this motion, and I realize in retrospect. Wait, Joseph, did you spectate my round for this one? Uh, I did. I did spectate this round. I remember yeah, this round. So I remember this round. Fun fact about this round: um, Andrew and I misread the motion. <laughs> Oh, what did you read? Oh, that's why you ran that case. Okay. What, what yeah. did you read it as? So we only missed, um, we, we missed, we missed like three letters <laughs> in the motion. Uh -huh. So we read developed as developing. Oh, you thought it was only developing? Yeah, I don't know why we both just collectively agreed it was developing nations. Like it wasn't something we both explicitly stated. We just sort of simultaneously ended silent prep and both assumed it was developing nations oh yeah that is rather unfortunate yeah i think alex even pointed it out in a poi he was our uh, we were oo he was our cg yeah he I pointed out that. in a POI really nicely it was uh -huh. like i know this sucks but the motion says develops nations not developing uh -huh. and i just uh well i wasn't speaking thank god it was andrew so he had to suffer the consequences it was andrew of... speaking yeah he pointed out in second because he let you let you let you guys babble about the wrong motion for 10 minutes no i i think you i think he gave me a poi but i asked for it verbally but he gave them all in chat so i didn't see them so oh. to his credit he was being like a cool honorable debater probably yeah. would have poi'd it first yeah yeah no when i was listening to the case i wasn't so you want to tell people what you actually ran okay uh, I'll pull up my document from yesterday, well, two days ago. I think a lot of analysis still does apply. Um, there is content broadly about why advocating for structural change is incredibly difficult. Um, some of the cross-applicable analysis in developed contexts as well is the idea of corporate lobbying, making it really difficult to create change. Although we did spend an unfortunate amount of time characterizing the context of developing countries, how they have a lot of need for economic development, why that's always going to be the priority for people within these nations. I think this is still applicable in some extent to developed countries where you can say um, people still are a lot more selfish. They care a lot more about their economic incentives. Of course, Alex does flip this eventually, but I think it's still um, somewhat applicable. Then we talk about, we extended this point to say why this improves long-term engagement with the movement as well, in terms of like, when you feel like you're able to create some change, you're more motivated to keep engaging with the movement, as opposed to when you feel like structural change is impossible or hopeless, you're more willing to check out of the movement. Then we do some basic impacting of like marginal change. If you clean up your local neighborhood, your quality of life gets better. If you do like beach cleanups, there's less microplastics in the ocean. Just do some like marginal impacting. And the final thing we said, which I don't think actually factored into the RFP, which makes me a bit sad, mm -hmm. is the idea of how we create more demand for structural change in the long term. Mm -hmm. And the way we characterized this was when you install values in your children to demand things like walking instead of um, driving cars, like when you, want, when you demand things like recycling, this also pressures, like for example, urban developers to design cities in a way that makes um, that's less carbon to car dependent. It perhaps it pressures the governments to 
put more funding into transit because there's more demand for transit. When there's more like demand for recycling, you have better like recycling systems within the country. I think CO expands on this. Yes, CO expands on this when they talk about demand for vegan products. But um, largely, it's just the idea that when you demand these types of structural change naturally in your everyday life, they also um, naturally get implemented without explicitly being campaigned for. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I remember listening to the speech and hearing you go full numbtot on the like urban <laughs> the urban development part. I thought it was actually a really cool part of the case. I, I think that it was, uh, and I think that it was engaged like reasonably with uh, on the government side and it wasn't factored into the RFD, but Ethan already was talking about almost everything in the RFD. Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't like blame him. I think that there's probably some more marginal impact, but uh, in my opinion, at least, I don't think it changes your placement over some of the other teams, though it it is, it does, it is like kind of comparable to the stuff that closing ended up running. What I will say about how I interpret your case at the start is I was listening to this on a on like literally on a car and what I was trying to understand your case as to your like benefit of the doubt is I thought you were saying that people in developed nations would yeah people in developed nations would act in ways that also help developing countries I thought that's how you were impacting it I wasn't exactly sure how because I was thinking about the developed nations context, but uh, now that I realize that you guys actually weren't, like you just straight, straight up misread the motion, uh, it is a little bit more awkward to interpret it that way. But uh, anywho, I think that, I'm actually surprised to see that, actually no, I'm not that surprised to see that it's, it's so heavily leaned towards opposition, because I think that, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, there are, much, it is much, much easier to show that people are going to do things as a result of personal responsibility. Like that is almost a guaranteed impact that you're going to have. It is almost guaranteed that people are going to reduce their food waste, they're going to reduce their car, car use, etc. What is, I think, much, much more difficult to show is why there's a likely chance that you're actually going to be able to get structural change. And uh, I think Alex and Leo do a very good job of doing this in your room um, when they say, look, People vote. Here are five reasons why uh, people uh, vote and are likely to vote in ways that are able to keep companies uh, accountable. Um, and then they also explained why it's particularly beneficial to uh, why it's particularly beneficial in comparison to be able to regulate corporations, uh, reduce the amount of uh, carbon uh, they can emit, reduce the amount of pollution they can emit. All these things uh, are really important, and if you can prove that. You pretty much win, right? Like you pretty much win the debate if you can show that you can actually hold corporations to to account, even if it's not fully. As long as you get a reasonable increase, it is going to be at a much larger scale than you can, even with a ton of people engaging in personal responsibility. Uh, anything to add on that? Yeah, I also like out of the CG case, uh, Leo and Alex's case, is when they link economic interests to climate change interests. When you talk about perhaps. Um, I'm forgetting the specific examples. I think one of them was agriculture, mm-hmm. maybe the idea of people's housing houses going underwater, maybe not to that extent, but um, something along those lines, mm-hmm. and why those are also like proximate economic interests that apply to people that are linked to climate change, which I think pretty easily defeats any op argument about why people are selfish and they care more about money. You'd link the two, so it's easier on closing gov. Yeah, exactly. And like, the answer in the real world is that there's basically some cognitive cognitive dissonance about 
the actual environmental harms and reality. Like you'll see on like news sources, I'm on Reddit a lot, so you every like every article that says, "Wow, this has been the hottest hottest like week and a half in this country," and it's like for all of the countries um, over the course of a summer, and people will be like, "Wow, it's almost like we've never seen this happen." And there are a lot of people which are genuinely surprised, and even uh, well, like I I more or less have accepted it at this point, but there are a lot of people who just don't understand that it is just getting worse and worse year over year and that's going to have real consequences like uh greater heat waves more droughts so like that even in like th these are the effects that happen in largely more northern and developed countries you can imagine how much worse it is um in in uh, lesser developed countries right now as well um but in terms of the mechanism that mechanism is pretty good it's pretty hard to come up with that and also explain it reasonably well in a way that defeats that uh it de defeats that mechanism so yeah uh, i'll comment briefly on the stats oh is really good and i'm pretty sure oh in a lot of the rounds are just saying that like look you can actually do less car you can use cars less you can become vegan you can have less food waste um these are all things that are very good you can drive an electric car you can not support companies which are uh which are harmful to the environment you just say all those things and a lot of times you win the round because what is oh what is what is government going to say a lot of the time, they're not going to prove why you're going to get actual change. You just refute that part pretty well, and then you're closing. Well, there's not that much that you're, more that your closing can add. Uh, yeah, and that's how I kind of see a lot of the rounds breaking down. It's pretty difficult on. Um, it's pretty difficult on Gov. It looks like most of the calls were just OOCO, OG, then CG in that order, but uh, with a little bit more with a little bit more diversity on CG because some of the teams were able to pull ahead and uh, take first or second, depending on how, how big brain of a case they could come up with. Cool, yeah, I think that covers a lot of the aspects of that debate. Uh, if you've got nothing else to add, let's go on to the next motion, which is round four. This house believes that emerging democracies should suppress domestic media providers in favor of international media providers. I don't believe I was in your round for this one, so how did this one go for you? Mm, round four. What happened round four? It's all a blur now. <laughs> it's one of the, it's one um, of the most balanced oh, motions yes. here. Yeah. I, uh, I think we also won this round where we were CO for, for this, mm -hmm. and we basically just talked about why there's going to be a lot of democratic instability, like authoritarian backsliding because of the perception of censorship. Mm -hmm. And I think um one of the more important contributions out of our case is giving a better characterization about the people within these emerging democracies. So it's just framing about why, like the fact that these are emerging democracies suggests that they were previously authoritarian or it's dictatorial in some sense, that people gained this freedom by agitating for it, usually with violence. And this suggests that people who are willing to do this and risk their lives probably care really deeply about their democratic values, about not being censored, about having freedom and liberty. And that's why there's going to be such a strong reaction to the per um, the perception of censorship. Well, not, not the perception, like actual censorship. It is censorship, right? Like, is that, it's real censorship. Actual censorship. So yeah, um, the other thing we said is that a lot of developing countries tend to have strong anti-Western beliefs within their people, whether due to historical colonialism, neocolonialism or just like being culturally opposed for religious reasons mm -hmm. so this was a wash this was attempted um this is a, a wash for the og argument where og says um they give a bunch of reasons as to why citizens accessing 
this um, Western media is good. So this was strategically important because this proves that people were less willing to access this media because of their um, personal biases or personal feelings. Yeah, because of the, like their experiences, right? Because they've probably gone through some kind of coup or some kind of war um, mm -hmm. against their old dictatorial government. Uh, yeah, that's definitely uh, pretty important to characterize the stuff that you talk about. Um, in addition, uh, I think it's also fairly... I, I don't know if this was contentious, was it contentious in your round that domestic media would be generally, would it be generally pro-government or pro, yeah, you're pro-government or like anti-government or like what did you guys imagine it being? Um, I think the round agreed it would tend to lean more pro-government. Mm -hmm. This is more of a clash on opening half as to why domestic media was good. Mm -hmm. um, this is supposed to be my second theme after proving why like there would be civil unrest and why this was the most important impact. And you might have noticed a problem with my time splits this round. I didn't have a chance to flesh out the second theme as to why domestic media was better. <laughs> but yeah, I think what we said in terms of our case across our two species overall is we attempted to flip the idea about better resources for investigative journalism by saying that um, investigative journalists would either be more willing, like local investigative journalists would be more willing to work with local news sources as opposed to news sources from the West and saying that Western news sources oftentimes just stigmatize locals, they don't trust locals, perhaps they perceive them as incompetent, perhaps they sketch a response. I think we got away with it, though. And the final thing was just a mitigation by bringing back your characterization about why these citizens care about democracy. This probably gives the state and the government some incentives to create the perception of legitimacy. And that's why they're going to like allow an opposition to be prominent and allow opposing viewpoints to go relatively unchecked within like the political sphere or within media. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that also, uh, one more thing you could say about the, your sketchy response um, is that I think you can also just say that the news sources or the people themselves who you'd be working with are more likely to work with domestic news sources compared to like international media providers, right? Um, instead, mm -hmm. uh, be For the same reasons that you gave before, right? They're, they have anti, they basically don't trust international media sources for the, the host of reasons you already gave, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that that generally covers a lot about this motion. It it was very balanced, actually. One of the most balanced motions I've seen, uh, at least at this tournament, is round four. So the results are like pretty valuable. Um, one thing I will say is that for a lot of the, for the, the for the round that I watched, this seemed to be it seemed to be a much better idea to focus on. I guess it's one of the rounds that you should focus more on big incentive analysis and what is likely to happen uh, rather than talking about like specific examples because they can lean certain ways in like different countries but i think specific examples here are probably still good to add but you really need to focus on um what are the incentives of the governments what are the incentives of people what are the incentives of media providers all those things are very very important to uh very very important to uh, discuss and kind of establish because if you don't establish that in a way that's good for your case and someone else does it you are going to lose. So it sounds like you guys did a really good job of that in your round, which is probably why you won. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. So I just talked a lot about our case from closing opposition, and I haven't really thought about the other side um, beyond basic concepts like better accountability and more resources so citizens get more accurate information. Um, what is your conception of the best scub case? Yeah, so I think that the, the best gov case you can run is very closely tied to things about democratic, uh, democratic backsliding. So firstly, you would want to characterize that 
domestic media uh, providers or domestic media sources are actually very likely to be still kind of corrupt or at least still kind of have, have having ties with the old government. And the reason why that's the case is because media companies don't come out of nowhere. Media companies probably still existed in the dictatorship. They were probably state-owned or state-influenced, right? But now they're newly independent. Uh, they still have relatively similar power structures with relatively similar people running them, which makes it very likely that they're they're going to say things that are, yeah, very likely that they're going to say things that are in support of the probably previous dictatorial government or whoever that group of people back. And it's not just a given that emerging democracies just become good democracies. It's actually very, very difficult for countries to make that leap. There are countries that have been in uh, this kind of emergency democracies, uh, emerging democracy state uh, for many decades and still haven't really become free and fair in terms of their media and their elections. It's like, kind, it's a sliding scale, right? It's like half free, half fair, that kind of stuff. Um, so what you probably argue um, on, on either government team is that you should suppress this in order to reduce, in order to just straight up reduce the the very powerful influence that um, that the old dictatorial government can have, who has an incentive to undermine your democratic government. You don't have to show that it's going to go back into a dictatorship. You just have to show that it's going to stay an emerging democracy and that it is going to stay uh, stay relatively uh, relatively unfree with people behind behind the scenes pulling strings so that they get the people uh, who are in power involved. And that is bad because it's probably going to lead to like certain politicians siphoning off money uh, and having it be hidden by the media. It's going to lead to uh, probably exploitation of minority groups who the government does not like, who are trying to overthrow them, that stuff being co uh, covered by the media. All the harms that media perpetuates in dictatorial governments uh, are more likely to happen if you uh, given this characterization, uh, if you don't suppress them. Uh, and then you would probably need to show that international media providers are comparatively better than this. So obviously, it's a little bit difficult to show that you would get similar amounts of coverage, but you can show why there would still likely to be coverage. And you would explain why international media providers have an incentive to cover cases of emerging democracies, because the media that happens there is crucially important. People are very interested in how governments in a lot of these countries uh, evolve, um, especially people who are within those countries. They have no ties to those governments, and those governments have no ability to have control over them. And you can solidify that analysis a little bit further by explaining, look, there, there are like two incentives of media, right? Or not two incentives, but their incentive is to uh, get people to watch them and to be funded. And for domestic groups, they might literally be half funded by old monarchies or regimes or stuff like that, which means that they have to work in their interest to continue to get their money. But for international media providers, they go off of like legitimacy. They go off of many, many people believing that they're credible news sources, which means they will continue to be credible. They will continue to be accurate. And uh, the news sources that they uh, provide um, would be pretty good, right? And uh, would be pretty good, pretty accurate, and pretty informative to people who would be living in those countries. So for example, major scandals in the government likely wouldn't be covered up. And that comes at the cost of like some smaller news stories that you maybe would get. Um, some smaller news stories that you would maybe maybe would get uh, in in whatever country is the emerging democracy that you're using here. Um, so that's what I think you should 
probably be running on government. I think the characterization is really important there. What do you think about that? Um, yeah, I think that's really good content feedback, which is really helpful for both myself and hopefully the <laughs> viewers and audience listening. Um, yeah, that's all the thoughts I have for this motion. All right, let's go on to round five, the last in round. This house would take measures to reduce rural to urban migration. Measures may include, but are not limited to, tax reductions in rural areas, direct financial transfers, increased government spending slash investment in rural areas, etc. So I believe I did watch your round on this one. Uh, what are your thoughts on this motion? Um, let's see. I feel like I've seen variations of this motion before, mm -hmm. but for the specific round, um, as you saw, we talked about gentrification to flip the... Oh, wait, which side were we on? You were CO, I think. Oh, we were CO again. Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, we were CO, and we tried to flip the gov claims about why the communities left behind get worse by talking about gentrification, how when rich people move in, um, richer businesses move in, they raise the cost of living because they can afford things at a higher price. Briefly, we talked about the OG point where they said pollution in cities is really bad. That's probably a very simplified summary of the points. But our flip was that it's probably better for the environment people move to urban areas because of economies of scale, where several apartment units can share one energy heating system compared to rural areas having services and houses be more detached and spread apart. So there's more energy used per person. Um, on our actual extension, I think we didn't actually have an explicit extension. We just had a bunch <laughs> of analysis. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So, yeah, in terms of refuting CG, which is also somewhat constructive analysis, CG says you'll lose important services, gives a, I think, better analyzed version of OG in some ways. And we try to mitigate this in the context of developed countries where we say, oftentimes people are aware it's really expensive to live in like downtown Toronto, for example. You have other reasons to not move, like emotional attachments to friends and family or the fact that there's less job competition, so it's easier and more secure to get a job in your local rural region. The implication here was that you don't significantly hurt rural regions either because they still mostly have services available. Even if you only have a few doctors, again, economies of scale, everyone can use the same hospital, use the same doctors. So you should rather weigh on the intensity of the benefits to the few individuals who do move and do get better job offers as well. The final thing we did in our extension was try and bring up a developing frame. I probably should have spent more time in this frame, but um, I think I got scared to lean hard into this extension because OG modeled this debate to be about just Canada. Yeah. I wasn't sure if I could reframe this in this case because I, I it, from my perspective, I, I don't think you can narrow the debate to be about just one country, even if you have one fiat on OG, but I wasn't sure, so I cut some time out of it. And the industrialization in developing countries argument basically goes like, in developing countries, you oftentimes need urban migration to help do things like manufacture, to help improve industrialization. This is the most important thing for these nations at the moment, given that they have a lot of need for general economic growth and just to provide more products and services that are necessary for the quality of life for people on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm, yeah, I think that assuming they don't, I, I actually, it, it's, it's definitely tough to say if you can flip the model from CO especially <laughs> i think at that point you might just want to go with it but i think you you can flip it. it might be a little bit risky but i would say like it's not reasonable to limit it limit it to this context and the reason why i think is because why i think that is because as a judge modeling it to canada actually just seems straight up incorrect and the reason mm -hmm. why is because rural to urban migration it plateaus somewhere around 80 20 
and it's been 80-20 in Canada for quite a bit. So that means you don't actually see that much rural to urban migration. Um, the places that you do see this a lot are countries that are not 80-20 uh, right now. So that would be countries like Nigeria, like China, like uh, India, right? We're close to half, depending on the country uh, of the population, still lives in rural areas. So I think that there is a lot more to say about uh, those countries compared to Canada, for sure, which is why I think you can maybe argue it. But definitely, like, if you put me in that spot, I, I, I would be confused as to what I'm able to do um, as well. Uh, I think it... I think opposition, especially opening opposition, should make it about um, those countries, especially, because that's where it has the most effect. That's where it is probably most important and most beneficial for people to uh, live in uh, live in urban areas, because a lot of the time it actually does not get more expensive. It probably gets cheaper. It gets better for the environment um, for some of the reasons that you listed. Um, so I think that if especially if you're opposition, you want to put it in that frame. I think government should generally accept that frame too, though I don't know they want I don't know if they want to spend that much time giving that frame because government's case definitely works better if you're just talking about like I don't know going from Toronto to Oakville or Toronto to Barrie or whatever, right? Because that is probably you probably want to keep people living in Barrie because living in Toronto has a lot of bad things that you can probably easily explain like it being super expensive, like uh the pollution like the, I don't know, stress of living in the city, whatever. Um, there's a good amount that you can say on government. Uh, and that kind of ties into how I feel about like the motion balance here. I think this motion is probably not one that you want to run like this because, or yeah, probably not that you want to run like this because it is too easy to give arguments that are too strong and intuitive out of opening government. Like this result of 12 teams getting second out of 17 feels like that should not be the case it feels like opening government should not this consistently be getting second and they have like mm -hmm. a basically an average point distribution of 1.9 which is really really skewed um so for that reason i think probably find some kind of wording to make this a little bit more complicated or a little bit more difficult to see uh all the intuitive arguments out of, out of government maybe like literally said it in developing countries um and then you would see yeah maybe literally just say this house would in countries that have relatively high amounts of rural like population pretty much would take measures to reduce ur rural to urban migration because if you said in canada there's just so little you can say on on opposition to refute like oh toronto is really expensive and uh toronto uh, the cost of living is high, stuff like that, or same with Vancouver, or like any of the other major, major, uh, major cities in Canada. Um, so maybe set it like that, and I think you probably see something a lot more balanced than what you ended up seeing here. Mm -hmm. um, one more comment about the wording of the motion specifically. I think another reason why this is um, advantageous to OG is that, like, the explicit mechanism in the motion of giving tax cuts, of giving financial transfers, just is already kind of good in and of itself yeah. towards helping vulnerable people. Like whether or not you believe it's good for them to migrate or not, they can just say there's a, an explicit benefit to just giving them more financial support, given that they do tend to be underprivileged. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I, I completely missed that part when looking at this the first time. But yeah, like you, you can, this motion can literally just be this house would give tax reductions in rural areas. You would give direct financial transfers. You would increase government spending and investment in rural areas. Like, yeah, that makes, that makes too much sense. That's, 
too easy. That's too good. That's that. That's why. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense as to mm-hmm. why it seems so good and so obvious to do from opening government, especially. Yeah. Um. Thankfully, our OG team didn't explicitly say that, but I think like they did mention to some extent the use of fiat, which probably stood given that they did get, take the second in our room. Yeah. I. I will not understand that call, but I will not try to. Okay. Cool. Okay. okay. That's it for <laughs> that's it for round five. Uh, let's go on to the quarters final round, which also was the semi, or which also was the junior semis for the tournament as well. Uh, the motion was: This house would ban the installation of non-medical information technology, such as enhanced memory, enhanced perception, and distance communication within the human body. So, um, I'll say first of all that. I yeah let's go let's get your thoughts first on this. Which side did you debate? How did you think about this? We were OG like we have been for every single out round <laughs> of my career ever. So yeah, um, in terms of okay, in terms of broad thoughts on the motion, I think it's really up to interpretation because you just hint at the existence of really advanced technology, and this just gives teams the possibility to run away with like all sorts of speculation about what this technology can do, hmm. which is. I think um, makes for uh, oftentimes a messy, a messy debate, debate but, I, yeah. I, but I think it's quite interesting. Like, you can just go straight up, like, sci-fi conspiracy theorist speculation. Mm-hmm. Um, for our specific case on OG, yeah, the first thing we talked about is why there's a lack of accountability. And the reasons, um, okay, first of all, the harms of the lack of accountability means corporations who have financial incentives can do things like perhaps, like, track your thoughts and your mental distance conversations on a very intimate level. For example, like if you're sad or depressed, if you've lost a family member, they can give you targeted advertising that preys upon your mental state, or they can do more pernicious things like perhaps alter your perception or alter your memory in certain ways that benefits them. And we give a few speculative examples. And the mechanisms as to why there is difficult accountability that I think perhaps the teams should have engaged with more in a more nuanced fashion, in my opinion, <laughs> uh, just to subtly say. But, uh, <laughs> Uh-huh. It was that um, it's often really, really subtle to know if something has gone wrong. So, for example, if a corporation alters your memory, you have no way of holding them accountable because your memory has been altered. So you do not remember what you don't know. Right. Yeah. It's your memory. Or it's like physically difficult. Like if it's a chip implanted in your brain, it's, you can't like take it out on a whim and verify <laughs> if it's stealing your data. And we give some analysis about why this is probably very complex technology. There's probably only a few experts or innovators in the field. They're going to be either concentrated in one company or they're going to be like in a few com- just a few companies at the top who have for like firstly very little in number and also have incentives to collude in cases of corrupt like quote unquote corruption because they all mutually benefit from a profit standpoint mm-hmm. i think that's refutable but um that's why it was sort of a preemption to any point on backlash that all the other teams sort of ran on and just basic impacting what this is bad it violates your dignity and your right to privacy um, other teams was like, ah, oh, yes, you already lose privacy. This is also preempted because we talked about why the problem here wasn't the loss of privacy, but the fact that it was able to be taken away from you unconsensually without accountability. Um, the second thing we talked about, which um, had some strategic flaws in the way we built the case, I, I wouldn't say flaws, but some things that should have been cleared up, was the idea of why this is firstly coercive and secondly perpetuates wealth inequality. And the way we built this case was that this gives you benefits to productivity in a capitalistic system. You have better memory, you have better learning skills, probably. And this means it's more attractive to employers. And people who need jobs to survive, who are competing against each other to get these jobs, are therefore coerced into changing their 
like identity or their biology on a very physical and intimate level um, in order to survive in this competitive environment. And we thought this was an unjust mechanism of coercion, given how deeply and intimately it changed you. The second thing we said was this uh, kind of a stock point about why this perpetuates wealth inequality, why lower income individuals aren't able to access this wealth. There was some comparative analysis about why some people who are from lower income backgrounds, although have structural disadvantages, are really, really naturally smart or really, really naturally talented, which allows some individuals to have social mobility because they can compete with people with more opportunities. But now they can't even do that because the biological gaps widen as well, which further disadvantages them. The reason this got, I think this was only pointed out on UpWhip, mm -hmm. which was that if this is really coercive, um, the fact that it is coercive suggests that this technology is widely available in order for it to be coercive. So it's then hard to believe that it, this is only accessible for like really, really elite people. I think the nuance that we should have pointed out in the case is that it's not about just being concentrated at the top. It's just about being specifically inaccessible to the people at the bottom. So you can have both impacts. Right. Yeah. So it depends on. And there's also, I think, probably work like that. I think the argument there is fine. It's just uh, you need to be ready for opposition to to explain uh, why it would likely be accessible. Right. Because technology, innovation, competition, some of like that profit motives. Right. Um, hmm. But yeah, I think that that was generally the standard case that I saw in my room, uh, too, on opening government. Um, and that kind of persisted throughout the round. Uh, I think that's probably one of the better cases you can run on Gov. I think the more interesting discussion is on opposition. So what did you like out of opposition between either your opening or closing that you saw? Uh, okay, so I think out of OO, um, a lot of the case is quite good, although they center around the medical applications, but the motion specifies non-medical information technology. Right. Perhaps it is applicable in some circumstances, I'm not sure. But I guess like what I liked out of them is just um, firstly, talking about the black market, which I think is pretty stock, the but black it was market? done. Oh, I yeah, didn't even it was think done reasonably that. well. I, I I would say. Uh huh. Wait, black market as in like people would black market install chips into their head? Yeah, the argument is that like this would be done outside of like legal supervision oh. because there was need for this. perhaps people who really really want to enhance their memory and prevent things like dementia, which is you know quite tragic for a lot of families. So what this would do is it would create this sort of black market, which made it harder to regulate. Um, this isn't super comparative because we already prove it's hard to regulate, but like, I think the analysis about it in terms of why regulation is better than complete bans is uh, stock, but really decently well done, I would say. Right. Yeah, that's that's super cool. I didn't even think I, I think that you can actually run that in a fairly convincing way by just saying, like, look, the motion just bans the installation of non-medical technology and it doesn't ban the research of it. And a lot of those things are probably interchangeable. So for example, um, if you've gone partially blind, you might need enhanced perception in your eyes as a chip that you could install or like a whatever, something you can install in your eye maybe, right? Um, or if you need enhanced memory or enhanced cognitive function to uh, account for some kind of disability or dementia or Alzheimer's, the research and the technology would still all be there. It's just not allowed to be installed in people for non-medical reasons. But if those things all exist, they, there's going to be some shady doctor who wants their kids to be really smart or who knows rich people who want themselves to be really smart or have better memory or have less fatigue or whatever, which reasonably could get it very accessible on the black market because the te technology would already exist it would already exist and already be tested on, on people just only for medical purposes. Yeah, I agree. Okay. That's also interesting, just the final note. 
Um, this didn't happen in my, in my round, but I feel like it would have been interesting if one of the op teams challenged whether or not we would support this being used medically. Mm-hmm. And perhaps we can draw parallels that like, wash some of our premises in terms of like coercion, where diseases are quite quote-unquote coercive in terms of affecting the way you make decisions. Perhaps the same issues with consent would apply, although I think we can argue some... Obviously, you would say yes, right? Obviously, you'd be fine with this we would say yes, medically, right? Yeah. yeah, you would say it would, yes. It would be a challenge in terms of proving the difference or the uniqueness of why this is non-medical technology and why our analysis still stands. I think almost all of it still stands. Like the equality stuff still stands. The coerciveness uh, still stands, right? Like if you're sick, you're coerced into taking medicine, right? Like you don't, you don't, you don't like no one's coercing you, but like you have a very large reason to want to take medicine or like if you have cancer, you have a very large reason to want to take chemotherapy, right? So uh, I think you can probably just draw the parallel there and then all your arguments stay consistent, I think. Yeah, that's fair. That's true. Okay, let me know if you heard this in in your round. But what I think is probably a pretty good and strong op case is a case about straight up why cyborgs do jobs better and why that's very utile. So like, I have two examples here. One, let's say you are a doctor. Doctors have a big problem right now of not knowing people's whole medical history because you can't know everyone's full medical history just by looking at a file by looking at it, right? Because your connection to the file is too slow. You can't read it and memorize it as fast enough, right? And the second thing is uh, they don't know how all drugs interact with all other drugs. And that's a very complicated kind of database that you need to look for um, when prescribing. And as a result, I think the number is something like upwards of 100,000 people get seriously injured or die as a result of doctor misprescription, um, at least in the U- in the US alone, which means that there is a big need to give doctors more ability to process information and have memory. What this does is you can install chips into doctors. um, uh, You can have doctors install chips into themselves. They would have better memory and enhanced uh, perception so they could could read and take in a medical history much faster. They can memorize uh, how every drug interacts with every other drug, which is something that we're pretty close to getting with computers right now. So in a world where this exists, they probably have that too. And they would be able to not misprescribe people medicine. They would be able to know everyone's full medical history. They would probably be able to work longer hours with less fatigue, with some kind of fatigue chip or whatever. Um, and they'd be able to not get as tired, which means they're not going to make as many mistakes uh, if you're uh, like prescribing people things or you're doing a surgery or anything like that. All those things would become significantly better, which means that less people die. You're able to serve people better. You can serve more people. You you ensure that there's probably a faster system where people don't have to wait so long, which means that people go in more to get preventative care, uh, to figure out problems ahead of time, get more screening, stuff like that. All of these things you could do much better and much more quickly. Um, and then the second example here is, let's say you're like a construction worker, right? Being a construction worker is really dangerous. Something can fall on your foot, you can step on a rusty nail, you can get something swung onto your face, uh, you can have something dropped on you and not realize. All of these things are really big deals um and like it's it's really bad for people to die as a result of their work because they don't really have another choice right um and being able to have this technology be installed into people means that uh and also all of these problems are exacerbated at night right because you a lot of construction has to happen at night because of like noise and people are using the roads during the day um stuff like that um and people are using buildings during the day and so probably give people night vision. You can probably allow people to have better perception of their surroundings. So 
If they see something dangerous on the ground, they won't step on it. If they see, if they like notice, uh, I don't know, they feel a change in air pressure or like sound of something falling on them, they can see it and react more quickly. You can use a bunch of biological physical enhancement to make it much cheaper or not much cheaper, much less dangerous uh, for them to work. You can allow them to work better, non-fatigue, stuff like that, uh, which makes them more productive and they can get more useful infrastructure made and they can do it more quickly and probably for more cheaply as well. Um, and then the last thing to tie that all that, that case all together is to say that uh, this will be accessible to almost everyone in the company that works there uh, for almost for the jobs that need it because the companies have an incentive to do so. Every person that gets hurt by a doctor can literally sue for hundreds of thousands of dollars and they usually win because usually the doctor messed up. Right? Or every construction worker that loses a hand or an arm or sight or their ears or whatever, or their hearing, as a result of uh, a workplace injury, gets compensated a lot of money. They get salary for life. Um, they get disability. Uh, they have, their insurance has a payout. Right? So there's a very, very large incentive to want to give these people the technology. So even if it was $10,000, $20,000, $30,000 um, to install in a person, um, it would still be worth it for the company because like, you pay them 50, 60, 70,000 for construction workers, probably more, and then like probably double or triple that for doctors um, as well. So they are worth a lot, making them more productive is worth a lot, preventing lawsuits and uh, disability claims and insurance claims is worth a lot. So you're going to have a society where uh, people in their work can be much more safe while doing it. They can provide much better services. They can do a lot more of it, which means we get closer to uh, being able to provide everything that they need in society uh, you can sing Kumbaya and be happy and have a wonderful world. But that's how I think a strong version of the op case can go, especially with how much leeway and creativity you're given by how the motion is specifically worded. That's really interesting. And this didn't really come up in my round in this specific way you've explained it. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the teams, I think it might have been closing op, did talk about productivity. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a broad comment about debate in general, because I think the problem with the way productivity was run in our debate was that it wasn't impacted or illustrated as well. Mm -hmm. And this is a unique case where illustrations aren't just good for like being persuasive to the judge, but also in terms of grounding your impact. Yeah. Because when you just say productivity in a vacuum, it's really hard to weigh, especially against like more tangible impacts given by other teams, which I think made it harder for it to be credited in the way it was ran in our round, given that it was under-illustrated. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's the productivity argument, except productivity is just a word. That's not an impact, mm -hmm. right? Like. People being able to work at night and work for longer hours to build more things, to be able to get more uh, shelters up, more apartments up so that the housing doesn't go off the roof, right? There's a lot of very specific things that you can do. I think you're exactly right to point out that the illustrations here are really useful for grounding impacts, but also grounding your analysis, right? Like if you're thinking about how to increase productivity in general, right? Like you could say maybe people can work long hours, longer hours, not get as tired, right? But in terms of how specifically they can do it, it's, you just can't analyze it on a general level. You have to look to certain professions and use those as your baseline for analyzing how you become more productive, right? Doctors don't have to uh, spend as long filing things away. They don't have to um, be as scared of providing the wrong medicine because they have uh, all the information they need. Construction workers don't have to worry about as much danger because they have more ability to avoid it. Um, all things like that make your analysis much, much stronger as a result. Definitely. Uh, any other final thoughts? Actually, yeah, just one last thing. Mm -hmm. In terms of what you were saying, I was thinking about your analysis mm -hmm. while you were giving it. Yep. And I think it's a really interesting flip to the principle. It's not a precise flip, but like what you can say is 
In terms of coercion, people are coerced into jobs on either sides of the house. Um, at least on our side, if they're equally coerced, at least they're safer doing it. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good flip. It's good for like defeating the weighing because I think there's possible... It's easy to weigh principles, but less easy in BP, but easier in worlds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can weigh principles and be like, oh, even if there's practical benefits, um, it's more important to weigh coercion because it affects your ability to rationally consent, this sort of weighing. And yeah, I just think that the, the principle flip is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that is a very worlds thing to point out, but very, very interesting nonetheless. <laughs> Okay, let's go on to the next one. Uh, for the semifinals, there's an info slide. A community veto is a referendum voted on by members of a geographical community or neighborhood that, if a majority so votes, would block any proposed infrastructure or building project in slash passing through that community. The motion is, uh, this house prefers a world with community vetoes. So, uh, this is... This is the round that well you can talk you can talk about the round first of all. Okay. Uh shout out to Leo and Alex for popping off an opening opposition and definitely burning the turf. So there was not a lot of content to talk about on wait, were they closing off? Yeah, they were closing off. We were no, they were opening off, we were closing off. Yeah. They definitely turf burned us pretty hard. Uh yet somehow we we made it through. You know, Joseph, I think you disagreed, but um I'm just glad we made it through. Yeah, like okay, I watched the round. And I thought, this does not serve... So, okay, so I, I'll explain my thought process here. Because I fully believe you two debated better than opening government. Like, you had better fundamentals, right? Or maybe not debated better, but, like, your fundamentals were better. However, I thought that opening government achieved some, new, some stuff uh, about being able to protect... Uh, uh, being able to protect... A minority of people and why they're particularly important and why this is a uh harm that you are likely to incur on people if you don't have community vetoes i think that opening government or opening opposition did a very good job of wrecking opening government i thought there it wasn't thorough enough to reduce all of it and that's what i weigh against the closing opposition case which had new analysis but i thought didn't serve much of a new function in the debate so i've heard this in like feedback given to me in like rounds that i've debated right your your analysis can actually even if it's a different mechanism if it does the exact same thing and has relatively similar impacts unless if i was unsure about how uh, a certain consequence would happen out of opening opposition the closing opposition thing that they say is not super useful in terms of contribution now I think you've probably had good enough responses and also weighing uh, that was new out of opening opposition that probably put you guys over opening government, which if I looked at my flow more more closely, probably I believe that OG got even more wrecked than I thought, which uh, means that you guys uh, should have made it through over them. I'm not even like at this point, that that's kind of how I saw it. But you can talk about uh, what actually uh, happened out of OO. And then how mm-hmm. that took took everything out of what you wanted to say on CO. Sure. I'll chat about the round briefly and about why I think our case has strategic advantages over OO. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get the RFD, but why I think we probably passed. Mm-hmm. So OG firstly talked about the principle of democracy. They say that these are often policies that deeply um, affect the lives of these individuals. They should have a right to, you know, have some say over them. And then secondly, they talk about cases in which this change is really, really bad and it's forced upon them. So, for example, like pipelines or perhaps factories that really harm the quality of life and people in the area. 
um, and oftentimes why they get passed because of lobbying. I think Ode points out that a lot of their case is symmetric by proving that there's, well, not proving, but by just observing there's local governments as well who get voted in and why they have incentives to not do things that are, you know, incredibly disastrous given it's bad for their campaign. I think they had a lot of nuance here in terms of the incentives of voters that I don't think I remember well enough to summarize here. Um, and Alex gives the lobbying response for probably, I think, the third or fourth time this tournament about why lobbying is only beneficial insofar as it funds your campaign advertising. Politicians predominantly care about voting or votes from citizens and why that's going to be prioritized. That he stole my response in closing opposition. I was hoping we could sneak in that as a new response. <laughs> um, and then he talks about why the principle isn't incredibly important, given we oftentimes already allocate um, political responsibilities to people we don't vote for. Oh, and then he talks about why there's good infrastructure that what is going to get blocked and mechanizes it pretty well. A pretty good case. Yeah, in terms of being on closing opposition. So I think it should be observed that it was quite hard because they did a very good job of not only um, refuting opening government, so there's no quote-unquote deadlocks to break, and they also had a, a good and well-mechanized case. But I think what we uniquely did on closing up, and I'll just talk about the case and what I think was new chronologically. This was less important, but we had a few possibly new responses to opening governments that maybe were not that useful because I think opening up is solidly ahead. Um, in terms of democracy, I think opening up only refutes democracy very flippantly through intuition pumping by saying, oh, bureaucrats exist, we don't vote for bureaucrats. Um, we spend more time in terms of refuting democracy by talking about why the obligation only exists based on the social contract and why this only manifests as a practical obligation to enshrine our rights and observing that even with referenda, the, you don't really get full representation of the principle because if the vote is, for example, 90% to 10%, your specific vote as an individual was not the tipping point to create change. So it wasn't really important or it wasn't really represented in a way. And I think this just overall serves to analyze why Democracy exists on a sliding scale. It is not an absolute obligation, which perhaps is a more nuanced take than opening up, although I'm not sure how necessary it was. But I think broadly in terms of the constructive extension, uh, we were trying to prove why good policies that improved things like housing accessibility were uniquely the ones that were going to be blocked and why this is better on the counterfactual. And the analysis here was... Um, the places with the most need for accessibility tend to be the places with the least capacity to win these policies in referenda because the demographics tend to be mostly rich people. And the context here is like, if you really need accessibility, this suggests housing is scarce, housing is really expensive, and therefore the people who are living there tend to be predominantly rich. What this means is that given the demographics, it's hard to pass referenda because if you're voting specifically on this issue, um, you're probably going to lose because most people are rich people. They're NIMBYs. They don't like driving down their property value by increasing housing supply. The comparative that we proved is oftentimes these municipal governments or well, campaigners have a plurality of issues that they campaign on. So when all of these things are grouped into one campaign, people who might not specifically like the accessibility policy might like one of their other policies. And there's a unique change created in terms of the people who are voting for these policies. And that's why it comparatively gets better on our side when you can pass these policies by proxy of people liking the other policies of these politicians. And the reason I think I, that I pointed out in my speech as to why we perceive this as strategically important, or I guess why we, how we try to make it strategically important, is by saying, given the context that we provided as to why these demographics are mostly rich, 
It's unclear on opening opposition how they get comparative benefits, even if they have local governments, right? Mm -hmm. So this proves why there is comparative change and why we can actually pass good policy on our side of the house, not just offensive content, symmetrizing or taking down opening governments. Um, so yeah, that's like our conception of what was important out of our case. Yeah, you know what? I think you pointed out, um, like listening back to it, it seems honestly really good, really strategic. I didn't catch all of that. Like I was listening really closely and I didn't see all the strategic value, but like obviously it helps for you to sit here and like explain what the strategic value of each of these things were. Um, it is actually probably what should come up more in the whip speech as well as to what the strategic value is, uh, which I think you would do a really good job of like whipping your own case here. But yeah, um, I, I think the case is actually really smart, which I can see more of the value now. So for anything I said about like, this is a loss, um, I'm glad you didn't lose because that actually seems very good. And I think that yeah. probably panels like discussing through it would realize there, there are a lot of actually, well, there are a lot of actually useful contributions uh, in your case. Hmm. One tangential observation that like I just thought of hmm. is in terms of whipping my own cases, I used to actually really do this in extension where I would have one or one specific unique thing and I would just spend like two minutes just explaining or weighing the value of it in extension. But like my style sort of changed in terms of, um, I noticed in this tournament, I did, a lot, I did a lot less of strategic differentiation, which I think defined most of my extensions when I first started debating. And it's more about like trying to win on a bunch of different paths, to, trying to create a bunch of different paths to victory and being more about constant dumping, which yeah. I think you probably also noticed content yeah no i'm just like looking at this and like all of your speeches that i watch had like three or four different things that you're trying to win on all at once and i'm like they're all explained pretty well i think some of it is cut a little bit thin or a little bit short because you're doing that but if something lands like there's a good chance like there's a good chance you're not going for right like if you go all in on something and then you don't explain it properly then that's that's a four right uh especially mm -hmm. uh, as people get better but if you have many different aspects uh, that you're, and one of them you're probably winning on because if you're focusing on all of them relatively evenly, which you generally do, uh, there's, there's a good chance you can have some reason for one of the judges to say, oh, that's probably a two, that's probably a one, or they just like win a decent amount on all of them, therefore they win the whole debate, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's just interesting how my style did a complete 180 yeah. over the course of three years. I think it's also quite different than how most other people do extensions uh, as well. I think it's not completely different, but it's it's like kind of a sliding scale and you're pretty far on the end of like, you're saying a lot of, you're, you're dumping a lot of good and new useful content that has strategic value. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. So that was the semifinals. Um, and then the grand final motion, which was uh, not very, it was stock, but I liked watching that debate a lot. I think it's one of the coolest debates um, I've seen so far, even as like a relatively stock motion. The motion was, this house prefers the use of a lottery system for admitting students to university for all students that meet a minimum academic threshold. Uh, so that was the motion. Um, spoilers, the team that ended up winning was uh, opening government, as I might have revealed before. But um, what were your thoughts on the round, having debated in it? Um, I think in terms of our personal case, one of the strategic mistakes was that we tunneled quite hard on the metric of like individuals, their fulfillment and their happiness. I think the stock O case looks a lot more like just talking about the practical values to society. Um, I know I complained about this a lot to you in terms of <laughs> what we regretted doing. And we had a case on research and why research is better and more innovative when um, talent is concentrated. 
And also we could have just like done a lot more impacting as to why it's beneficial that we get better students alongside talking about why it's good for these students. Just saying things like better qualified people to serve others in society, more doctors to save lives, these sorts of things. But we tunneled quite hard on individual fulfillments, which probably was, I mean, it, I think it was a mistake. Um, in terms of the round as a whole, I think the round overall was really interesting because all teams had unique things to say. And back half talked a lot more about the schools themselves as an institution, whereas front half talked a lot more about the individuals, which is an interesting observation to make. And the last thing was OG ran the stock, well, not the stock, but like the intuitive principle of unfairness and inequality of opportunities quite interestingly. Um, I think you had different thoughts on the principle than I did along with a lot of the other judges. But like um, the first part is the basic stuff about why people are born into different places. They have different opportunities because of their socioeconomic background. And then they start talking about, I think Leo in the later half of the principle talks about why some people are more biologically predisposed to working hard. Some people are more biologically talented. So it was sort of a determinism argument, which I thought was old and very interesting. <laughs> and I might have thought it was too interesting because I spent 45 seconds dealing with it independently. But, but yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's a classic. If you've been through debate coaching, you will have learned about the veil of ignorance and you'll have learned about... Um, we are all like all these things are arbitrary and they're arbitrary because you don't determine any of these things um and i think it works pretty well here right because the strongest most intuitive arguments on opposition are about why people who work harder deserve the benefits right and why we have a system currently that rewards uh hard work and that also rewards like having wealth but it, it's actively attempting to not be the case that they're uh, awarding wealth um, and uh, opportunities and rather awarding hard work, but it still exists there, right? So this does two things to remedy um, remedy a problem that is an unfair system that exists right now. So I think it actually has a lot of uh, value in, in that case that I actually didn't see when thinking about, thinking about the value of that argument from yesterday. Yeah. Um... I can talk about how we attempted to engage with the principle, then perhaps you can like summarize your thoughts on it, because I know you said some really smart stuff about why this is like, um, it's not an active principle in a lot of ways and why yeah. it's sort of, yeah. yeah sure. So the way we interpreted it was, we perceived it as an active principle about why it was an obligation to correct this unfairness. So what we said was we first tried to um, do some mitigation by pointing out, like even if people have different opportunities, they have different jumping off platforms, but a lot of it is based on individual merit in terms of how, how much you study, how much you do extracurriculars. So while there's a degree of unfairness, there's also a degree of autonomy involved in terms of the success of students. So what we said was that we didn't need to have a blanket lottery to rectify marginal, well, not marginal, but like um, partial, in, partial injustice. We could just have existing systems to rectify this inequality. For example, the fact that adm admission officers evaluate your um, portfolio in the context of your economic circumstances. So one example is they don't necessarily look at the total number of APs you take, but rather how many were available to you in your school, um, whether or not like they were just available in your local region. Um, if you had IB programs in your school offered to you, these sorts of things. So a lot of it is, con is contextually based. There's also things like essays acting as a countervailing mechanism about why this is also accessible to lower income students who have unique experiences. Um, and just some stuff about why universities try and have a balanced class so they have ge geographic and economic diversity as well 
So some students who perhaps come from less competitive or perhaps poorer regions get somewhat some benefits in terms of the application system. Even if this doesn't completely rectify inequality, the fact that um, there is some merits in, involved in terms of applications and the inequality is only so some, somewhat marginal in terms of the application process means that it is sufficient to correct the principled injustice. Oh, and in terms of their determinism argument, their argument is that there are biological differences, so we shouldn't reward people who work harder because it wasn't their free choice, because they were more biologically predisposed to it. We couldn't really think of a structural way to refute this. We just gave an intuition pump and said, I think I said, um, this also goes the other way, like probably they would still defend uh, prosecuting criminals, even if perhaps some people were more committed or more predisposed to committing crime biologically, we would still hold them accountable because we believe in free choice. I don't think this was incredibly important to the debate on either side, but um, yeah, that was the response to the second half of the principle. Yeah, from the way that that part specifically was talked about, it wasn't clear enough how exactly that takes down the argument because there's a few links you have to make there, I think. Mm -hmm. And then what I'll say to the principle argument on my thoughts on it, I think that there's a good way that you can reframe the value of their argument in a way that makes it not so not so strong, right? That actually makes them do a little bit more work. So sure, um, let's, say they, let's say at the best case, they show that there are injustices right now and we make it more fair. Um, however, all they're really doing is moving where the, so right now there is a coin flip basically from where you were born that determines how well your life goes, right? And what kind of riches and goods you get. Um, on their side, you have basically a coin flip at the point in which you are entering for a university, right? So uh, there is going to be a coin flip no matter what, right? And some people are going to be arbitrarily picked uh, over other people. And, and I think the justification they gave for why it's better to have the coin flip be done earlier doesn't actually explain why it is more just to do it like that, just that it is, um, it is not any less just to make that the coin flip. I think what you can then say is, so there's like probably some that still is standing out of that. Um, but then what you can say is, if you lean into the research kind of stuff or the better society kind of stuff, um, this is kind of the classic philosophical defense for allowing inequality um, as well, is that even if um, there is inequality, you're able to make people who are the worst off in society or the poorest off in society better as a result of allowing uh, allowing the most talented and rich and hardworking students into universities. Um, and the reason, maybe not rich, but like talented and hardworking because they're the ones who are more likely to be able to leverage and take advantage of the opportunities they are given, which means that they can either become, uh, they're more likely to become successful doctors. They're more likely to become uh, successful, I don't know, social workers. They're more likely to become successful in the careers that they go into uh, or like scientists or researchers who can all produce benefits that make even the worst of the worst in society uh, off, right? So they can do things like, I don't know, invent better agricultural practices, which means that people in a lot of countries around the world can now uh, grow food more efficiently. They can grow food with less water. Um, that probably saves hundreds of thousands of lives. They can develop better solutions towards extreme poverty, um, work on developing uh, specific systems that can help lift people out of poverty. That includes like mosquito nets um, and uh, like high, high yield crop seeds and organizing a whole program to put all these things together. These are things that are very, very difficult to do that provide benefit to people who are, uh, who are the least fortunate off in society. And those are the things that allow, yeah. And those are the things that allow the justification for this inequality or this unfairness to exist because there are going to be 
people you're going to be able to help society as a whole from being uh from allocating the the most resources towards people who can be the most productive with them yeah unfortunately for us uh i ran out of time for the third argument so even though i roadmapped it i did have to drop it so this weighing did not come out in the round but i think it's a really smart way of, weigh of weighing on the practical to defeat any principle that comes out of government mm. in general right yeah and but yeah your partner also roadmapped it too <laughs> and then didn't say anything about it um, damn yeah, that is kind of tragic. That is mighty tragic. I don't know how close the call was. It seemed like it probably would have been pretty close. So let's not, let's not wallow in regrets there. But yeah, uh, any other thoughts on this round? Uh, I'll briefly talk about actually the the CG and the CO um, for anyone who didn't get to watch it. CG basically argued that um, that the world. So a good two thirds of the case was about how people are less happy taking debate classes or Model UN and DECA because that's soul crushing. Very funny. Uh, I love that part of the speech, but a little bit derivative because OG had good analysis on that. And then uh, the second part, which I thought was a stronger part, was about how people become, or how jobs in their selection and how society becomes much more fair. So the parts that I thought were really good were the parts where um, uh, CG analyzed why companies are less likely to emphasize where you go for university and they're less likely to emphasize the existence of university at all because some people probably just don't get into any of their universities right and they just move on and they start working so uh there will probably become more of a, a more of an emphasis on your actual skills your actual like interview skills abilities um your portfolio whatever things that are probably easier to access than university um and are probably more productive as the metrics in which you would use to hire people and that for reasons that were weakly explained out of CG reduces the amount of inequality in society and probably makes society more productive as a result. Um, yeah, and then uh, that was the main part. And the second part that they talked about was like how the de-emphasis on university probably allows you to prioritize other things that make you happy as well, right? So you become happier focusing on your relationships, you become happier focusing on your hobbies, not having to join in on the rat race overall, uh, the, the rat race to university which probably can make you happier, especially as a younger person. And then for CO, uh, they talked about, they probably had uh, the best responses in the round to the minorities will get more representation, which is that they are minorities, right? And if you're coin flipping, they're still going to lose out most of the time, right? They might actually lose out more than they do right now because in a lot of places there exists affirmative action for, uh, for people who are part of ethnic minorities or disprivileged backgrounds, right? Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, they added a few other things uh, to their case, which I have actually written down here, but um, basically why they added some analysis about why they'd be able to research things better, why they'd be able to, uh, yeah, why they, why people would be able to generally live out better lives, get better jobs as a result of being able to um, go to uh, a more fitting university that is, that caters to what your needs and what your demands are as an individual student better. Those were left a little bit vague, which could have uh, which could have helped their case, but generally pretty strong, pretty well well reasoned reasoned case there. Um, what I will say lastly, which we got in feedback from uh, Josh Cohen, which both me and Liz thought were very good, was focusing on the part where it says meet a minimum academic threshold. Right. So firstly, is it a minimum across all universities? Is it a minimum for that specific university? If you're comparing it to how it works right now. A lot of, especially Canadian schools, just say you have for this program, you meet this minimum academic threshold, 
and then we decide whether or not we want to admit you or not. Are you going to get admitted? It's actually kind of a dice roll. Um, so uh, for for most for most programs at least. So if that is what you're trying to apply everywhere, and you have really pre prestigious schools like Harvard or Yale or whatever, they're likely to want to maintain their prestige in government's world, which means that they're likely to set these academic thresholds extremely high, like think 98, 99% averages in um, high school. And what that means uh, is that your life is going to be focused on getting grades, which is a lot more boring than focusing on extracurriculars. It's a lot less equal compared to extracurriculars. Some schools just give you better grades because they're rich and they can afford to do so. Um, and they can, and because they have a reputation to want to allow people to get into the best university. So that is a system that becomes a lot worse. That's kind of the starting case um, to, that's kind of the starting point for the other kind of framing that you can take on the motion, which focuses a lot more on how this is bad to put a minimum threshold on a lottery system rather than the kind of holistic in uh, uh, the holistic process that we have right now at least in the united states yeah shout out to josh like when he said that that was like mind-blowing <laughs> yeah that was massive brain. he's like i work in uh i work in admissions offices right now and this is what you need to focus on and, and uh it made a lot of sense it was very good it also defeats the OG principle because, like, there's still inequality yes. in access to education. Yeah, exactly. It completely destroys the OG, the OG principle. Like, it blows them out of the water. Like, the argument does not work at all if you have this in the metric, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they got away with that one. It was the last one that got away. <laughs> Unlucky. Oh, also, last thing. Shout out to Claire. At some point in her speech, she was like, playing League of Legends can be fulfilling. Probably made a lot of gamers happy. Jin hinted at it, and then Claire finished it. It, it was a really fun speech to listen to. It's also pretty well-reasoned and pretty well-analyzed. From, from mm -hmm. It was a really Definitely, fun yeah. one to watch. Huh, alrighty, so that brings us to the end of the motion segments and uh, to our conclusion for this first episode of BTT. Uh, any, any finishing thoughts on either of any of the motions or anything we talked about today? Um, not particularly. I just thought it was a really fun tournament. It was a roller coaster of emotions, but I thought it was quite well organized. The judging was all like, stellar, at least from the judges I experienced. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was, it was lovely to debate there. And it was lovely to be here today. Yeah, uh, it was really fun to watch, really fun to coach a bunch of people uh, in that tournament. Uh, it was really enjoyable for me to go to and like spectate all around. They were really nice about it. Uh, all right. So the last thing I'll note about this tournament is I'm fairly certain that this was the last tournament of this competitive year because it is August 20th. The tournament was August 20, 20th to the 21st, which means that next tournament, you are going to see the start of the next season of debate, which will be very, very exciting. I don't know when the next tournament is. Wait, is Enviro is next week, isn't it? Oh, yeah. That is true. still this year's tournament, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so do you know the team count for that one? Um, nope. I'm not involved, but of course I can probably send you some details after. Oh, okay, yeah. So it's like a smaller tournament. Look out for that. I don't know if Reg is still open or probably not. I don't know. Um, but uh, this is probably the, 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 the last major of, of, of this competitive. So, yeah. Uh, looking forward to the competitive season next year. We'll probably probably run some kind of podcast talking about it uh, in the future about what is happening in the next competitive year. If you're looking for the tournaments uh, and the and the brief breakdown on what the tournaments are going to be for next year, there is a 
QCID uh, 20 list that includes high school. I'll probably include them in the description or the show notes for today. Um, yeah, that's everything for us today. Thank you so much, Liz, for coming on today. It's been a pleasure talking about all the motions, talking about debate with you. Any shout outs you want to have? Um, yeah, shout out to Andrew, my lovely partner, and for playing Tetris with me in between the rounds. It was a vibe. Nice. Perfect. Alrighty. So that is it for today. Hope you guys enjoyed listening. Uh, give, me, give me any feedback in the comments or uh, any reviews. That would be much appreciated. And hopefully we will see you next time, either in a week or two. Uh, yeah, this has been Joseph. Elizabeth. Signing off.